Part two of There is a Tavern in the Town from Here Are Ladies by James Stevens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. There is a Tavern in the Town. Four. The old gentleman took an athletic pull at his liquor and continued his discourse. He had been discussing more to himself than to me the merits of Professor James and Monsieur Bergson, and had inquired was I aware of the nature of the pragmatic sanction. The gentleman behind the counter remarked that he had one on his bicycle, but that they were no good. This statement was denounced by the philosopher as an unnatural and clumsy falsehood, and, anathematizing the ignorance of his interrupter, he came by slow degrees to the following discourse. I have but little faith in any of the methods of education with which I am presently acquainted. The objective of every system of teaching should be to enable the person who is being subjected to this repulsive treatment to do something which will fit him to maintain a place in life where he will be as little liable as possible to the changes and vicissitudes of civilized existence. The cumbrous and inadequate preparation which is now in vogue can scarcely be spoken of by a person of understanding without the use of language unbefitting one who is a member of inter alia the reformed church and the highest order of the vertebrates if one walks into any school in this kingdom one is certain to meet a tall thin anemic youth with a draggled moustache and a worried eye who is endeavouring to coerce a mass of indigestible inelastic and unimportant facts into the heads of diverse sleepy and disgusted children if a small boy on being asked where labrador is replies that it is the most northerly point of the berlin archipelago he may be wrong in quite a variety of ways but even if he answered correctly he would still know just as little about the matter while if he were to give the only proper reply to so ridiculous a conundrum he would tell his tormentor that he did not care a rap where it was that he had not put it there and that he would tell his mother if the man would not leave him alone. What has he got to do with Labrador, Terra del Fuego, or the Isles of Greece? Give him a fistful of facts about Donnybrook, and send him away to hunt out the truth of it, with a sandwich in his pocket, and the promise of a lump of toffee when he came back with his cargo of truths. That would interest him. The toffee would make the information stick, while the verification of his facts would make his head fat and fertile when we ceased to be natural creatures and put on the oppressive shrouds wraps and disguises which we label in the villainous aggregate civilization we ceased to know either how to teach or how to learn we exchanged the freedom and spaciousness of life for a cramped existence compounded of spectacles and bad grammar this complicated still further by the multiplication tables the dead languages and indigestion tabloids during his school days, many a healthy boy had to parse ten square miles of dead language. Why? He does not know, and he will never be told, for no one else knows any more than he. The only thing of which he is certain is that he did not do anything to deserve it. Civilization, which is responsible for all the woes of life, such as washing, shaving, and buying boots, is responsible for this also. Potatoes are more productive than Latin roots, are twice as nourishing, and cannot be parsed. 
Teach a girl how to recognise an egg by the naked eye and then teach her how to cook it. Teach a boy how to discover the kind of trees eggs grow on and what is the best kind of soil to plant them in. Teach a girl how to keep her hands from scratching, her tongue from telling lies, and her teeth from dropping out prematurely, and she will, maybe, turn out a healthy kind of mammal, having a house filled with brightness and laughter. Teach a boy how to prevent another boy from mashing the head off him. Teach him how to be good to his mother when she is old. Teach him how to give twopence to a beggar without imagining that he is investing his savings in paradise at fifty percent and a bonus, and then having eliminated civilization, education, clothes, tin whistles, and soap, this earth will not be such a bad old ball alley for a man to smoke a pipe in. Everything is wrong. People should rise to their feet and salute when a farmer or teacher comes into a room. No man should be allowed into Parliament who has not engaged in one or other of these professions. But because they are the two most important professions in the world, their exponents are robbed and harried into slaves and fools. Having said this with great earnestness, the old gentleman absent-mindedly impounded my drink, absorbed it, and strode away wrapped in thought. The gentleman in waiting sympathetically asked me if I would have another one, but on learning that I had no more money, he said good night. Five. The old gentleman was in a state of most unusual content. It might have been because the sun was shining, or it might have been because he had just finished his third glass. Whatever it was, the smile on his face was of a depth and a radiance impossible to describe. He spoke for a while upon the pleasant smell of hay passing through a city, and, remarking upon the enviable thirst of haymakers, he swept gradually to the following weighty monologue. From the earliest times, said he, Drinking has been regarded not alone as a necessary lubricant, but also as a pastime, and the ingenuity of every race under the sun has been exercised in the attempt to give variety and distinction to its beverages. We may take it that the earliest race of men drank nothing but water, and hot water to boot, for at that era the earth must have been, if not hot, at least tepid. One can easily imagine that the contemporaries of the five-toed horse might have welcomed death as a happy release from their too sultry existence. I suppose man is the only brewing animal known to scientific research. All other creatures take their food and drink neat or in a raw state. Of course, almost all mammals are enabled by a highly ingenious internal mechanism to brew milk or some other lacteal substitute but this is performed by a natural, instinctive impulse towards the preservation of their young, and conserves none of the spirit of artifice and calculation so necessary to authentic brewing operations. Brewing was possible only when the stability of the human race was, more or less, assured and permanent. Our primal ancestors existed in a state as nearly resembling chaos as well might be. They had not yet aggregated into communities but vast hordes of families, a father, an uncertain number of mothers, and an astounding complexity of children, wandered wherever food seemed most abundant, and fought with or eluded such other families as they chanced upon. This state of existence was too precarious and haphazard to allow of the niceties of brewing being involved. 
but the natural tendency of families to lengthen, the gregarious instincts of the race, and the need of mutual protection and assistance ultimately welded these indiscriminate families into communities of ever-varying extent, and the movements of these huge troops and transportation of their baggage becoming more and more difficult, vehicles being unknown, and horses, perhaps, treble-toed, wily, and ferocious, and food, which until then had only been obtained in a fugitive state, becoming less easy of access. These communities were forced to select a settled habitation, search the earth for provender, settled down to the breeding of one-toed horses, and exercise the respectable virtues of thrift and industry for their preservation. Thus laws were formulated, tentative and unsatisfactory at first, and ever tending as to this day to become more complex and less satisfactory. Villages took shape, straggled into towns, widened into cities, and coalesced into kingdoms and empires. And so the civilization of which we are partakers crawled laboriously into being, with the brewer somewhere in the centre, active, rubicund, and disputatious as he has continued to date, with a seat on the county council which he had swindled some thirsty statesman out of, and more property than he could deal with by himself. It is a singular reflection that thirst has very little to do with the consumption of drink. Nor is this appetite subject to the vagaries of climate, for the inhabitants of the coldest regions will, it is feared, drink on equal terms with those dwelling in the sunburnt tropics. In almost all ceremonial observances drinking has had a special place, and this diversion lends itself to an infinite number of objects. We can from the same bowl quaff health to our friends, and confusion to our enemies, doubtless with equal results. Here alone men meet on equal terms. There is no religion, nationality, or politics in liquor. Let it be but sufficiently wet and potent, and it matters not if the brew has been fermented in the tub of a Christian or the vessel of a heathen Turk. I understand that this latter race are forbidden by the form of heresy which they call religion to use liqueurs more potent than sherbet. Some thinkers believe that this deprivation is possibly the reason of their being Turks. They are Turks not from conviction, but from habit, spite, and the bile engendered by a too rigid and bigoted abstinence. In this belief, however, I do not concur, for I consider that a Turk is a Turk naturally, and without any further constraint than those imposed by the laws of geography and primogeniture. Meanwhile, it is interesting to speculate on the future of an absent nation, whose politics have the misfortune to be guided by a peerage instead of a beerage, and whose national destiny is irrationally divorced from the interests of the trade. Any departure from the established customs of humanity must be criticised unsparingly, and, if necessary, destructively. To overthrow the customs of antiquity must entail its own punishment, and that punishment may be an awe-inspiring and chastening success. Therefore, this happy, whisky-governed land of ours should never forsake its liquor, or it may be forced by opportunity and work to become great. The foundations of our civilization are steeped in beer. Let no sacrilegious hand seek to interfere with it, for, even if the foundations were rotten, 
the interests of the trade must not be disturbed. The grave and learned members of our corporation might be horribly reduced to working for their living, and our unfortunate city might have the extraordinary misfortune to scramble out of debt in the absence of its statesmen. The old man, with a bright smile, said that he did not mind if he did, and he did, with such gusto that I had to call him a cab. 6. The old gentleman came in hurriedly and called for that to which he was accustomed. He fumbled in one pocket after another, and, after going over all his pockets several times, he remarked to me, I have forgotten my purse. His air was so friendly and confiding that it more than repaid me for the small sum which I had to advance. He sat down close beside me, and, after touching on the difficulty of being understood in a tavern, he drew genially to these remarks. Language may be described as a medium for recording one's sensations. It is a gesture translated into sound. It is noise with a meaning. Music cannot at all compare with it, for music is no more than the scientific distribution of noise, and it does not impart any meaning to the disintegrated and harried tumults. Language may be divided into several heads, which, again, may be subdivided almost indefinitely. The primary heads are language, talk, and speech. Speech is the particular form of noise which is made by members of Parliament. Language is the symbols whereby one lady in a back street makes audible her impressions of the lady who lives on the same floor. It is often extremely sinewy. Talk may be described as the crime of people who make one tired. It is my opinion that people talk too much. I think the world would be a healthier and better place if it were more silent. On every day that passes there is registered over all the earth a vast amount of language which, so far as I can see, has not the slightest bearing on anything anywhere. I have been told of a race living in Central Africa or elsewhere who by an inherent culture were enabled to dispense with speech. They whistled and by practice had attained so copious and flexible a vocabulary that they could whistle good morning and good night or how do you do with equal facility and distinction this while it is a step in the right direction is not a sufficiently long step to live among these people might appear very like living in a cage full of canaries or parrots parrots are a very superior race who usually travel with sailors they have a whistle which can be guided or deflected into various byways. I once knew a parrot who was employed by a sailor man to curse for him when his own speech was suspended by liquor. He could also whistle ballads and polkas, and had attained an astonishing proficiency in these arts, for by long practice he could dovetail curses and whistles into a most energetic and indeed astonishing manner. It would often project two whistles and a curse sometimes two curses and a whistle, while all the time keeping faithfully to the tune of the sailor's grave or another. It was a highly cultivated and erudite person. As it advanced in learning, it took naturally to chewing tobacco, but being a person of strongly experimental habits, it tried one day to curse and whistle and chew tobacco at the one moment, with the unfortunate result that a piece of honeydew got jammed between a whistle and a curse, and the poor thing perished miserably of strangulation. It is indeed singular that while every race of mankind is competent to speak, none of the other races such as cats, cows, caterpillars and crabs have shown the slightest interest 
in the making of this ordered noise. This is the more strange when we reflect that almost all animals are provided with a throat and a mouth which are capable of making a noise certainly equal in volume and intelligibility to the sounds made by a German or a Spaniard. Long ago, men lived in trees and had elongated backbones which they were able to twitch. There were no shops, theatres or churches in those times and consequently no necessity for a specialised and meticulous prosody. Man barked at his fellow man when he wanted something, and if this request was not understood, he bit his fellow man it was quit of him. When they forsook the trees and became ground walkers, they came into contact with a variety of theretofore unknown objects. The necessity for naming which so exercised their tongues that gradually their bark took on a different quality and became susceptible of more complicated sounds. Then, with the dawning of the pastoral age, Food in a gregarious community became a matter of more especial importance. When a man barked at his wife for a coconut, and she handed him a baby or a bowl of soup or an evening paper, it became necessary, in order to minimise her alternatives, that he should elaborate his bark to meet this and a hundred other circumstances. I do not know at what period of history man was able to call his wife names with the certainty of reprisal. It was possible quite early because I have often heard a dog bark in a dissatisfied and important manner at another dog, and be perfectly comprehended. A difficulty would certainly arise as to the selection of a word, when forty or fifty men might at the same time label any article with as many different names, and it is reasonable to suppose that they would be reluctant to adopt any other expression but that of their own creation. In such a crux, the strongest man of the community would be likely to clout the others to an admission that his terminology was standard. Thus, by slow accretions, the various languages crept into currency, and the youth of innumerable schoolboys has been embittered by having to learn to spell. Grasshoppers are a fine, sturdy race of people. A great many of them live on the hill of Hoth, where I have often spent hours hearkening to their charming conversation. They do not speak with the same machinery that we use. They convey their ideas to each other by rubbing their hind legs together, whereupon noises are produced of exceeding variety and interest. As a method of speech, this is simply delightful, and I wish we could be trained to converse in so majestical a manner. Perhaps we shall live to see the day when the journals will chronicle that Mr. Redmond had rubbed his legs together for three hours at the treasury bench, and removed frothing at the feet. But after a little rest he was unable to return and make more noise than ever. The old gentleman smiled very genially and went out. The assistant suggested that he had a terrible lot of old guff, but I did not agree with him. End of part two of There is a Tavern in the Town by James Stevenson